if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 28. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. My goal this morning is not so much to squeeze every ounce of truth from the text of Matthew, chapter 28, but rather to talk more broadly about the subject discussed in Matthew 28, namely the resurrection of Jesus. In the latter part of our time together, we're going to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll even provide some overview along the way. This is sort of what happens when the preacher doesn't get to preach on Easter for a year, right? You get two sermons the following year. It's kind of what you get this morning. Now, I want us to think together about the resurrection and what it means for us. I hope to appeal first to your head in order to appeal to your affections, or to your heart. Both of those are essential. What I'd like to do for Matthew chapter 28 is to provide something of a defense of the resurrection of Jesus. What we are asking of the text before us is this. Is the resurrection of Jesus real? I would suggest to you that if Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, That has tremendous implications for us, even this morning. If Jesus is alive, and I believe with all my heart he is, that changes everything about my life, and it ought to change everything about your life, and indeed it has changed the course of human history. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse number 1. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. The Bible says here in verse 1, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his robe as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. But the angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has been resurrected just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he's been raised from the dead. In fact, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I've told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, good morning. They came up, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Even according to 21st century conventions for historical criticism, for the way we assess history and whether it's true, whether it is authentic, there are evidences for the resurrection built into our passage. In verse 1, the Bible says, After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Now, there are a couple of things that are outstanding about these initial observations. 
we have thankfully moved beyond some of these sort of realities in history and in culture. I hope we have anyway. But given the sort of misogyny and the patriarchal nature of society in the first century, if you were looking for people to testify to the authenticity of the resurrection, the last people you would have chosen would have been women. In a first century court of law, a woman wasn't even permitted to bear witness. Even if there were a number of women, their testimony would not be substantial. It would not be taken into consideration. It wouldn't bear the weight that the testimony of even a single man would have. And yet the Bible says here that the initial witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary. There is even more than that. Here we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene as witnesses of the resurrection, but we have a somewhat subtly different accounting of this in the other gospel accounts. And even the apparent discrepancy in details bear witness to the authenticity of the resurrection itself. Let me show you what I mean. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 1, the Bible says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they could go and anoint him. Here we have the inclusion of a woman named Salome to Mary the mother of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, a subtle distinction between what is described here in Matthew and what is there in Mark. In Luke 24, listen carefully, the Bible says on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. Not one angel, but two men here. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. In John chapter 20, we find this. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. I really believe that John is here making an effort to include Simon Peter and John, the beloved disciple, to buttress or to strengthen the testimony of those women who saw first the empty tomb. There are subtle discrepancies in each resurrection account. This does not bear the marks of a carefully colluded effort on the part of the church to put together a verifiable story, to concoct a narrative that might be embraced for generations to come. These are the breathless testimonies of those early eyewitnesses who looked into the garden grave and saw that Jesus is not there, encountered there by an angel who made the declaration, why seekest thou the living among the dead? Christ is not here. He is risen. And to that, the skeptic might respond, see, there are discrepancies. We can't trust what the gospels say. Even the names of those women, the number of those women, and the number of angels seem to be to some extent in question. I would have you to note that none of those discrepancies are in conflict with any of the other gospel accounts. And I would suggest that you find the time in the very near future, maybe even before you leave the campus today, speak with a police officer or an attorney if you can find one who's accustomed to debating in a court of law. If you were to come up on an accident today at a crime scene or an accident scene, and there were four witnesses to the accident, 
you would find four sets of details, subtle distinctions and discrepancies in their testimony, each testifying, witnessing from their particular perspective. But that in no way negates the fact that an accident or a crime has taken place. Criticizing these kinds of distinctions in the perspective provided on the gospel, on the resurrection, is like criticizing da Vinci because his portrait of Jesus doesn't look like Michelangelo's. We have paintings here. We have perspectives here. We have testimonies here from varying perspectives, all testifying to the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even further, in verse number one, the Bible says that this was after the Sabbath on the first day of the week. You might remember from Jesus' earthly ministry that more so than any other topic dealt with in Jesus' back and forth, his debate with the Pharisees and the scribes was the issue of the Sabbath. Often, Jesus was engaged in debate over the Sabbath. They perceived Jesus as doing something that violated the Sabbath, and Jesus really, truly never did that within the course of his earthly ministry. He always operated within the bounds of what the Old Testament set forth as acceptable. Now, for us, looking back on the resurrection, Jesus has become our Sabbath rest. But that back-and-forth debate helps us from all these years later to gain some perspective, some idea as to the strength with which the Jews had been indoctrinated with this Sabbath concept. They were to cease from all their labors, sometimes in extreme ways. The disciples being Jews coming to faith in Christ would have never thought to break with that Sabbath tradition and to see the worship of God who is in heaven, the one true and living God, shifted from the last day of the week to the first day of the week, except to memorialize or commemorate some outstanding event that happened on the first day of the week, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This radical departure from Sabbath observance in Judaism that precedes Christian faith. And by the way, they didn't see themselves so much coming out of Judaism in so much as they saw themselves coming to the fulfillment of their formerly held Jewish faith. And now even that changes from the earliest stages of Christian history. I'll tell you another evidence of the truthfulness of the resurrection we find in our passage. It begins in verse 5. The Bible says here, but the angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has been resurrected, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. One of the most compelling evidences for the resurrection of Jesus is the fact that Jesus is not in the tomb. He is not there. In fact, it is a distinguishing mark of the Christian faith. There are other world religions that claim great numbers and exert great power in the world today and might believe for themselves they to be a legitimate, valid expressions of how it is that we approach the God of heaven. But if we had the technology and the insight, we could go today, we could locate the body and recover the remains of Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. If we had the technology and the insight, we could go today and we could locate the remains and we could verify the identity of those remains of the Buddha, the father of Buddhism, a vast world religion. 
we could go with the proper technology and insight and locate the remains of Muhammad the prophet, the father of Islam, a world religion with great influence in our day. What makes us different as Christian folk is that the founding father of our faith is alive. He is alive. He is not in the grave. He is alive. I would add to this, it's not just the absence of Jesus from the grave that serves to verify his resurrection. In the first century, grave robbing was pretty commonplace, especially for someone of the significance of Jesus with celebrity, which would often be attached in the mind of grave thieves some wealth that might have been tucked away in the tomb with them or wealth that might have been on their person when they were buried away. But Jesus appears to the disciples after his resurrection. This is the distinguishing mark. Many bodies had been carried away in the night by grave robbers and thieves. But Jesus appears there at the garden grave, not just to Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene and Salome, not just to Peter and to John, but to more than 400 disciples. Jesus reveals himself after the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is alive. There's no effort on the part of the early church to memorialize or venerate the tomb of Jesus. If you ever go to the city of Jerusalem, You'll pay a hefty price to go out to what is believed to be the tomb of Jesus. I'll just sort of steal a little thunder here. They don't really know, and there's not a lot of likelihood that the place you pay to go is really the tomb of Jesus. Because for 300 years of Christian history, there was no effort on the part of the church to say, this is the tomb of Jesus. Because they knew then factually what we now know by faith. Jesus is not there. He is risen. Christ is alive, brothers and sisters. I'll tell you another evidence closely attached to Jesus' absence from the tomb. We've already hinted at this or referenced it outright. Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection. Now, this defense of the resurrection has been offered so often that it's almost become cliche, but there is simply no way to answer for the willingness of those early disciples to die for a story they knew to be a fabrication. There's no way to account for that. If we, if we try to account for the behavior of the disciples apart from the resurrection, we end up making leaps of faith even greater than the embrace of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, some will come along and argue that this, this, this story is a later uh, amendment, a later concoction of the church in order to communicate a deeper, more spiritual meaning that Jesus lives on in our hearts and minds. But I, you, you got to know, listen, you got to know that no man dies for the memory of a friend who has passed before. And by the way, Roman authorities were not killing Christians because Jesus lived on in their hearts and minds. Roman authorities were killing Christians because they were contending that Jesus rose physically. Jesus rose bodily from the grave. And as a consequence of his resurrection, he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And that includes the Caesar of the Roman Empire. Christians died for these truths early on, attesting to their heartfelt conviction, the eyewitness testimony of these men and women who saw not only an empty garden grave, but a living Lord Jesus Christ days after bearing the nails that paid the price 
for our sin. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is alive. We sing sometime, we, we didn't sing it today, and it would have been okay if we did, but we sing sometimes an Easter hymn. He lives. Do you know the hymn? It's, it's kind of, well, it's a nice hymn, and there are parts that I really enjoy and appreciate, but there's a line there that makes my eye twitch. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. It's kind of sentimental and very nice, right? But here's the line that makes my eye twitch. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand full well this morning that we're not talking about some distant mythology. We're not talking about some fairy tale story that Jesus doesn't just live on in our hearts and minds, although that might be true, that Jesus quite literally was physically, bodily resurrected from the grave. If you were here on Friday night, one of the reasons I wanted us to walk through those last days of Jesus' earthly ministry was to help us to sort of set a historical context for the life of Jesus. I think there are times when the gospel story suffers from familiarity fatigue. Like we hear this talked about reference so often that it becomes distant and we're unaffected by that. But I want you to know, listen, I want you to know that there was a very real moment and time in history when the only begotten Son of God was nailed to a tree, hands and feet bound and nailed to a tree. When to verify his death, the centurion shoved a, a sword into his side to ensure his passing and water and blood poured forth. When the lifeless and limp body of Jesus was taken down from Calvary's tree and tucked away in Joseph's grave. And over the course of what was understood by Jewish expectations to be three days, his body would have undergone these and more processes. At first, rigor mortis would have begun to set in, and his body would have begun to stiffen like that of an animal you've seen deceased. The blood in his veins would have begun to dry and then congeal. His heart would not beat. His chest would neither rise nor fall with breath. Jesus was dead. And eventually, rigor mortis begins to, to move to the next step, and the body begins to limpen once again. The process of decomposition begins to take place within the very literal body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as the disciples spend a bitterly sad Sabbath day mourning the loss of their friend and, and writhing in utter despair, Jesus lays cold and lifeless with no heartbeat, with no brain activity, with no breath in the grave of Joseph from Arimathea. And then the sun begins to rise on Sunday, just as we pick up in Matthew chapter 28. And in a miracle that is unmatched in all of human history, the dried and congealed blood that once flowed in the veins of our Savior begins to move again. And the heart that lies still now for three days begins to thump yet again in the breast of our Lord. And the chest that sat silently now for three days begins to rise and fall once more. 
And the once cold and stiffened body of our Lord begins to move about once more as the Spirit of God raises Jesus in great victory. The army of angels of God descend on that place. The earth trembles beneath them, and a heavy stone covering the mouth of the grave begins to roll away. Christ would lay aside his grave clothes and walk out of that garden grave in great victory. And brothers and sisters, that changes everything about my life, and it ought to change everything about your life. And notice where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. We're here in chapter 28, and we're just a few verses removed at the conclusion of our text from the end of Matthew's Gospel. In fact, you'll find the resurrection account at the end of every gospel. It's at the end of Matthew, it's at the end of Mark, it's at the end of Luke, and it's at the end of John. And the unintended result of that, I think, for many Christians is to draw the conclusion, an erroneous conclusion, but to draw the conclusion that because the resurrection story comes at the end of the gospels, that the resurrection marks the end of the story. But brothers and sisters, that could not be further from the truth. In fact, perhaps the key contribution of the book of Acts is to note for us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not the end of the story, but the beginning of a brand new story. And God begins to work in resurrection power through the life of the church. That power that endows the apostles in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 as they go and bear witness is the very power that raised Jesus from the grave. That power exhibited throughout the ministries of Peter and Paul and other apostles, that's the power that raised Jesus from the grave. That power that abides within the believer, enabling us to overcome the sin that so easily entangles us and leads us in our efforts at advancing his kingdom here on earth. That's the power that raised Jesus from the grave. The resurrection is not the end, but the beginning of what God intends to do in the world around us. You'll find 10 sermons in the book of Acts. And in each of those sermons, there is a common denominator, a single focal point that stands out in each of those 10 sermons. It is the resurrection of Jesus. I, I, I celebrate, and we ought to celebrate, and don't take anything I say to be setting aside or marginalizing the significance of the cross. I rejoice in that at the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. At the cross, Jesus became my substitute. At the cross, my sin was carried away as far as the east is from the west. At the cross, the righteousness of Jesus was accredited to my account. I thank God for the cross. But brothers and sisters, apart from the resurrection, the cross is a meaningless martyrdom for us. It's the resurrection that signs, seals, and delivers all of the benefits of the cross. And when the message of the gospel is preached those 10 times in Acts, the single common denominator is a proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. I wonder if there isn't some subconscious draw in the Western church to the cross because it's there that Jesus does for us what he so powerfully does. Whereas in the resurrection, certain demands are made of us. Jesus does something for us at the cross, but if Christ is alive, he demands something of us. 
In any event, it is the resurrection that is the focal point. And there's this growing understanding in the scripture that it's the resurrection that is the foundation, that is the bedrock of our faith. This is communicated in every letter in the New Testament. Perhaps the lengthiest treatment of this concept of resurrection as central as the focal point is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want you to turn there with me. Paul is here dealing with the church at Corinth. Just a brief background and introduction. We almost never do this shifting between passages in a single sermon, but I thought it'd be helpful this morning, so I'll give you a little background while you're turning there. Paul is writing to the church in the Greek city of Corinth, and pretty much all you need to know is the church at Corinth is all jacked up, like it's a big fat mess. Sometimes I get calls from preacher friends and they want to moan about issues in their church and sometimes wacky things can happen in the church. But I have never yet received a call that comes anywhere close to the jacked up and mixed up mess that you see in First and Second Corinthians. And among their struggles, among the challenges that they face there seemed to be some degree of misunderstanding when it came to the resurrection. Now, in the passage that we're going to look at in verses 12 through 19, They're not arguing here that Jesus is not raised, but there are some who are saying that we are not raised physically, and we'll address that in a little more detail in just a moment. Look down to verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 12. Here the Bible says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some say there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, what Paul is doing here is probably backwards from the way that we're thinking about this passage. He's saying that because Jesus is raised, you simply cannot say that we will not be raised. Now, I find often in conversation that people think that because of the resurrection, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that what that guarantees us, and they think this to be a uniquely Christian thing, what that guarantees us is life after death. And that is true. I'm not suggesting that that is not true. In fact, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. At the moment of our death, we are with the Father. Our soul or our spirit leaves the body and is present there in the presence of our Father who is in heaven. But that really is not uniquely Christian. Various other world religions believe in the concept of life after death. The resurrection of Jesus means more than just life after death for us. In fact, the resurrection is the guarantee of life after life after death. Because the Bible says, and this is based in the resurrection of Jesus, that there is coming a day when at the return of Jesus, with the voice of the archangel and the sounding of the trumpet of God, that this physical body is going to be raised again and joined together with our soul already in heaven with the Father for us to experience this glorified state. Now, how do you like that? Now, brothers and sisters, we might rejoice in a season of loss and sadness in the promise of life after death, that indeed to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But on the darkest of days, when the diagnosis or the prognosis is not what we had hoped it would be, we might rejoice further in the promise of life after life after death. Paul says, because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is the guarantee of our physical resurrection. Look at verse 13. 
But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation. And so is your faith. What I'm laboring to show you this morning, folks, is that apart from the resurrection of Jesus, we have no hope. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, this is all vanity. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, we are all spinning our wheels and wasting our time. In verse 15, the Bible says, in addition, we're found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. Again, the resurrection is everything for us. Just a quick rehearsal of what Paul has illustrated for us in our passage. Without the resurrection of Jesus, our preaching is without foundation. It is baseless. Again, we are spinning our wheels and we are wasting our time. There, there are many who would posit some benefit in Christianity in spite of the fact that it's built on shaky historical grounds. In other words, they say, we don't believe it, but we see how it, it betters or helps in society, so we give it the polite nod, when nothing could be more foolish or further from the truth. In fact, Paul says the Christian preacher is a liar. He's an immoral man if the resurrection of Jesus is not true. If there is no resurrection, we are without base with regards to the gospel. Without the resurrection, our faith is baseless and futile. We are broken. We are yet in our sins, yet in need of a rescue. And because to me, it seems common sense to look around at this creation and suppose uh, an intelligent designer, a power that is beyond us, you had better hasten to find out who he is if Jesus has not risen, because brothers and sisters, we are all in big, big trouble. Without the resurrection, we are still in our sins, yet unforgiven, yet broken. Without the resurrection, we are hopeless. Now, we sort of gave a historical treatment to Matthew chapter 28 and evaluated that. That sermon is the sermon that I have been preaching at the television during the History Channel documentaries that aired during the Easter season for about 10 years, right? And I'm talking to a screen that cannot respond, and you've been my opportunity to vent about such issues in the time that we've had together here this morning. I believe with all of my heart and my soul and my strength and my mind that Jesus physically rose from the grave three days after his death, and that has changed everything for me. But I, I want you to know that beyond a historical understanding of the gospel, there must be a theological understanding, an understanding with depth. In the words of Jesus, you must be born again. There was never a time in my life when I would have sought to debate you about the resurrection or say, that's not true. I just gave it the tip of the cap the way most people do in America, assume that this was probably right or at, at worst, harmless, morally neutral in some kind of way, and went about my life unaffected and unfazed by the notion of the resurrection of Jesus. 
Do, do you remember in John chapter 20, Jesus has been raised and has appeared to some of the disciples, but there are still disciples who have yet to see him. Now, he's not in the room at the moment, but Thomas says in their private conversation, unless I see the scars in his hands and his side, I will not believe. And then Jesus shows up. Now, he wasn't present when Jesus said what he said, but because he knows all things, he draws near to Thomas and says, Thomas, see my hands, see the scars, see my side. Now, Thomas's response was not, now, on historical grounds, I believe that you are raised from the dead. Rather, it was a theological confession of his faith in Jesus. He said, my Lord and my God. And I would suggest to you that there are many, there are many, there are many in our community, in our county, in the Mid-South, and in America, who would give the tip of the cap to the historical facts of the gospel, but have yet to bow and confess with doubting Thomas, my Lord and my God. We set out in the beginning of our examination of Matthew chapter 28 to ask this question, is the resurrection the real thing? And where we've landed here this morning demands of us a question and answer that is even heavier than that. And here it is. If Jesus Christ is raised from the grave, what are you going to do with a living Lord Jesus Christ? I grow so weary at times of talking about tangential issues that aren't central to the gospel. I find myself commonly and I'm not overly burdened and glad to engage in these discussions as they're appropriately, but I appropriate, but I find myself commonly in conversation about things like sexual ethics, about things like evolutionary science, about things like the problem of evil. If God is good, how can bad things happen in the world? And I just got to tell you, I'm not an ethicist. I'm not an evolutionary scientist and I'm not a philosopher. But what I am is an expert in the Bible. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ is alive. And if Jesus is alive, then none of our objections matter. We are left to but bow in humble submission before the goodness and the grace of a God who lives, who demands our allegiance. You must reckon with this question. What will you do with a living Lord Jesus Christ? Apart from the resurrection, there is no hope. There is no rescue. There is no chance. I, I go through now, as many of you do, the self-checkout at the Walmart. You all familiar with that? Which verifies for me what I always suspected, that I could do it faster than they could if they would get out of the way. I go through the self-checkout with a touch of apprehension. Because I'm always afraid that I will miss something, and it's a bad look for the pastor to shoplift at Walmart, right? <laughs> so I'm going through, and I'm checking my items, making sure the proper number of beeps happen and the right things come up on the screen, and then double-checking the receipt as I walk out. And I notice some people do this in a real cool, casual kind of way. They just stick the receipt down in there, and then they make their way out. And from time to time, I'll see someone walk out without the receipt, like the machine is still cranking it out. I take a different approach. I put all of the stuff in the bags, put the bags in one hand, and I walk with the receipt like this. Because I, I really don't want to be thought to have shoplifted something, right? 
I don't want to be suspected of having taken something that was not mine. And most of the time, because of that receipt wafting in the wind as I walk through those automatic doors, no one stops me along the way. I get the polite nod. And even in the event that there is some hassle, they're having some kind of enforcement effort, the nice lady will stop. She will look quickly as though she has actually read what's on the receipt, and then she will send me on my way. What I'm saying to you concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that his resurrected body is our receipt. That though there may be hassle along the way, there may be some level of difficulty along the way, resurrection in hand. We have the promise of life after death. And even as we've learned this morning, life after, life after death. But only, but only, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. A faith that demands more of us than the tip of our intellectual cap to the, to the events or the facts of the story, but the full embrace of our heart to acknowledge that Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, it changes everything about my life. It changes everything about your life, whether you know it or not, and in fact, has turned the course of human history. Brothers and sisters, I came today to say to you that Jesus is alive, and that's the best news known to man. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for the chance to meditate on what it means to acknowledge that Jesus lives. God, thank you for your son, for his death in our place, for his resurrection from the grave, and all that that intends for the people of God. I pray that in the next moments, as the good shepherd, you would call the name of every sheep that is not yet of this fold. God, that, that you would break down the biggest of ego, that you would cut down the tallest of pride, that you would rent from top to bottom the most calloused of hearts, and grant the gift of faith that we would see beyond what we might know with our mind to what we might embrace with our hearts, that Jesus is alive. God, I pray, I pray, I pray that none other but your will be done here, even as it is in heaven. God, awaken us from our slumber. With zeal, dismiss us into the world to do even as Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were instructed to do, to go and to tell the world that Jesus lives. Help us in the closing moments of our service to rejoice in this new reality. In Christ's name we pray, amen.